episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Hannah Del Toro, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, who will be talking about her work in an area of interest the wisdom of anxiety. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you, Noah. It's so good to be here with you. I know, long time no see. Yes, I, I enjoyed catching up with you some before we started this podcast, and it's good to see you. I, um, I know that we office next to each other around, so that was before the pandemic, 2018, right. yeah. 2019. And we had such a good little counselor corner of the world. And it's good to see you even in this capacity and be able to talk with you. Yeah, same here. Um, so to get us started, Hannah, what are your credentials and experience? So I am a licensed clinical social worker. I um, graduated from the University of Texas with my master's in social work. I think it was 2006, December of okay. 2006. And I have done various social work jobs, many different types of social work jobs, and then settled into private practice on the side of work around 2011 and full-time since 2013. Awesome. Um, where did you do your um, internships and stuff when you were in school and like for, to get your LC? So I went to, um, the first one I did where I worked, one of my first... Well, actually, it was maybe my second or third job in the social work field was with LifeWorks, and I was there. Awesome. Yes. Awesome I, organization. I loved it there. I have incredible memories um, from that time, and yeah, I have awesome memories of the people that I met and the work that I was able to do and the people I was able to work with, and so um, I did my first internship. I was working full-time there, and they let me do an internship in a separate department, which back then was called, um, oh, the acronyms, um, <laughs> family violence, family domestic violence network, maybe some, it was, uh, it was back then. So that was around 2005. Um, that would do the counseling services for domestic violence offenders and do groups. And I, um, interned and apprenticed to some amazing people there that I was able to co-facilitate groups with them um, to support people. Um, that was that was really awesome work. Yes. And then cool. my, se my second internship was at Capital Area Mental Health Center. Um, and that was also, um, that was where I got the counseling piece, which I was really excited to sort of settle into that part of it. Very cool. Um, so your practice, does it have a name or is it just your name? Oh, that's a good question. So it is now under, um, 
I actually met my husband at LifeWorks. Well, not at LifeWorks. We met at a group of Phantasma show and danced. And then um, he took a job at LifeWorks and worked in a different department. Um, and he is also in the mental health field. So we are under one umbrella called Del Toro Counseling Services now. Del Toro Counseling Services, PLLC, is technically um, the name of our organization. Cool. Okay. I didn't know that you and Hector had done that. That's awesome. Um, so do y'all, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones, if not, why not? Um, so yes, we do accept insurance, um, early on, got on the typical panels, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, United Healthcare. I think, uh, Hector's on Aetna. I am not on them. I do Medicare as an LCSW. I feel like the Medicare population, because so far, it's only been psychologists and social workers that can serve that population. Mm-hmm. I stay on there so that I can help with Medicare folks. And that's also one of my favorite populations to work with is retirees. Um, I really like working with people at that phase in their life. And so Medicare, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, United, I think I'm on Humana. <laughs> I'm not great at keeping track of them all. Um, I, and Cigna, Humana and Cigna, I think are the five that I take. Okay, cool. Um, Now, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee options available? I do, yes. Um, I've had a lot of clients over the years, maybe they go through a period of unemployment and lose their insurance um, or things like that, that I will do sliding scales to work with them to help them until they get insurance again or employment that they're able to pay the, the cost. Okay. Cool. Um, What about any weekend or evening appointments? So most of my appointments are evening and Saturday. Um, My work week is Wednesday through Saturday, and I kind of start late afternoon into evening, Wednesday and Thursday, and then all day Friday and then Saturday. So I do both. My appointments have been full for a while. Um, Yeah. So I have hired a virtual assistant, which is a huge, huge, huge help. So when people register through my website for services, she reaches out to let people know if I'm full or how to get on the wait list. Cool. That's awesome. That's very nice. Um, So as far as like how you're seeing clients, are you seeing clients via telehealth, in-person, combo of both? So I am fully virtual at this point. Um, because I have a rare immunodeficiency disorder and that is in our home that we have to be careful quite a bit longer than most people in this pandemic. So we are all virtual and we'll stay that way until it truly feels safe, which I'm thinking might be a year or so. So kind of just watching to see how that evolves. Okay. Gotcha. Now is being a therapist, your first career, if not, what was? So My first, I would consider myself really, really that social worker side of things. And so I I knew I'd land in counseling and in private practice, but I really began more in the case manager role and in the social work kind of boots on the ground helping people. So at LifeWorks for a while, I worked with um, pregnant teens, pregnant and parenting teenagers, and I would... I had the flexibility in that job to help them uh, get to doctor's appointments, get their first jobs, get into school, get their GEDs, get whatever resources they need. And I loved that work. And then I worked with teens aging out of foster care, um, also through LifeWorks, and I loved that. And then I've worked in um, skilled nursing facilities. I've worked inpatient psychiatric stabilization Um, so I did that for a while as a social worker. Um, so I've had a variety of sort of in the field jobs before settling into private practice. And all of that has been really helpful in informing the way that I want to work with people. Yeah, for sure. Makes a lot of sense. What is it that ultimately drew you to being a therapist? So I was thinking about, I was thinking about this. I did the bulk of my own counseling work in my 20s. I had a really awesome therapist. 
I would describe her style as sort of attachment therapy. And I did a group with her for about five years as well. And, you know, I just remember this one day in session, her just sort of saying, the work we're doing is really revolutionary, like just you and me right here. And I think that to me was sort of this indicator of when we do this work on ourselves and we're willing to self-reflect and we're willing to dig deeper and we're willing to learn about boundaries and um, getting our needs met and communicating our feelings and making peace with our feelings, that that really does change, like it ripples out. And so probably being an introvert, I was drawn to the ability to do that deeper kind of work with people on that one-on-one level. So I would say that's, those are the seeds that were planted in me, my twenties that drew me to doing this specific work. Makes sense. I find that uh, a lot of people end up going into this work after having really positive experiences, um, you know, and in, in doing their own work in therapy. Um, it's really cool. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows, music, pets, kids, etc.? Yes. So um, <laughs> I, being in the pandemic during this time as an immunodeficient person, my whole family is home together all of the time, right? We have a little office out back that we go work in. And so I haven't felt like I've had the same amount of time for hobbies or things like that. I help uh, one child with virtual school and then homeschool my other child. So we have two children and we have a, we have a basset hound named Roscoe who our <laughs> family loves and is entertained with frequently. And um, as far as TV, when I get, I'm one of those people who gravitates towards a really super lighthearted, like really surface lighthearted stuff, which isn't necessarily like me, but like right now I'm re-binging the show Younger because I find that show hysterical and I'm- I think I've heard of that one. Oh, it's so good. It's the character in it is Liza Miller and she's- 40 years old and tries to get back into the publishing industry. And oh, wait, maybe I have heard about this one. Oh, okay. I think I know what you're talking about. She can't get a job as a 40 year old. So she masquerades as a 26 or 27 year old or something. And all of the hilarity that ensues from that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's my free time. <laughs> cool. Cool. What hobbies were you doing before the pandemic? Just out of curiosity. Um, well, I think our kids were still pretty young, so there was a lot of focus on just taking care of the kids and home. I like to have a creative side, so in the past, I've gotten together with people and made cards um, or cool. done crafty hobbies like that, so I find stuff like that fun, or um, I actually, I guess in the past, right before the pandemic, I took a class on the Enneagram, and I like I don't know. I like connecting to stuff like that. That's cool. Um, well, also, and as we were talking before, you have a podcast. This is true. I just started when you inspired me. Um, <laughs> That's <it's>, awesome. <laughs> thank you. It's, uh, it's a little nerve wracking putting my voice out there in that way. But I, I wanted to put some, I call it Hannah's therapy thoughts. And it's just general themes that come up in therapy that I wanted to be helpful with. Um, so the first one I put out there was anxiety. And actually that one feels pretty dry to me. Um, but then I, the second one I put out there, my own experience with anxiety. And then I've done one on pandemic overwhelm. And then I recently did one on friendship. And I'm looking forward to doing one in the near future on how therapists can make mistakes and how to handle that both as a therapist when we make mistakes and how to handle it when you're a client and you feel like you've encountered a mistake. So um, I have a lot of different themes that I just want to put out there to be helpful to people. Well, and um, people can find more about that on at your website at hannadeltoro.com, right? Correct. Yes. Thank okay. you. Cool. Um, which also I will link that in the show notes. Um, so I'm glad you're doing that. I'm honored to hear that I inspired you in that way. That's awesome. 
Um, Thank you. So, you know, in working with folks as a therapist, we have, you know, the numbers and types of tools we can have in our toolbox are many. Um, what modalities do you tend to draw upon and like, how would you describe your approach? So I would say the biggest one is cognitive behavioral therapy. I am very focused on how people talk to themselves. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think, especially with anxiety, uh, people can turn the volume up on anxiety and have a lot of thoughts that feed it or learn sort of some self-calming thoughts that can help calm anxiety down. So I think that would be a lot of how I work with people is listening to how they talk to themselves and how they talk about subjects and then making gentle suggestions while encouraging them to put the gentle suggestions in their words in a way that will work best for them. And with that being said, I think I'm also really client-centered. I consider myself somebody who goes wherever the client goes. And I, I want to go where, where the client needs that day, what they need support with. And so I would say, and I'm even that way, actually, in terms of this was a conversation that came up recently of when people are done with their work. And I let all of my clients know that that is up to them completely because somebody may come in and be like, this is what I want to tackle. And we tackle that. And then they're like, you know what, this is a nice, safe space to talk about things that are going on with me. And I have a few more things I want to dig into. Or somebody may come and they may make a ton of progress in, let's say, the area of anxiety. And then they may decide there's some, there's just something more they need to tackle. So I let people know that they really drive the therapy ship with me. They really set the pace and the tone and and can communicate to me if they're ready to go down to every other week or once a month or ready to take a break and step away. So I, I give clients that. Cool. Cool. Do you ever run into any issues with insurance about that? Like in oh, terms right. of therapy, that can be tricky. It can be really tricky. So I do tell people like insurance sometimes has its model of, you know, this is a problem. Let's tackle this and be done. And so I let people know that upfront that, I am a client-centered cognitive behavioral uh, therapist, but that it's going to, you know, that if that is ever an issue, we would just need to talk about it. I've not surprisingly had insurance be um, ever question that in a really rough way, because I think I am always able to communicate what we're working on and where the person is at and just give them the feedback that is needed to continue services based on the actual what's going on in the sessions. Um, but I do always wonder if that could happen. So I have that same question. When I was on insurance, I would get uh, what seems like, or what felt like anyway, some frequent calls from insurance companies to do clinical reviews so that a person could stay in therapy. Um, and for listeners out there who aren't familiar with insurance, Sometimes insurance policies have limitations in terms of how many sessions you can meet in a plan year, for example. Um, and then they also have criteria that needs to be met in order for somebody to stay in therapy uh, long term as well. Um, so that, that kind of is one of the drawbacks of using insurance in you know, obtaining therapy, um, for sure, unfortunately. It's a broken I still system. Agree with you. <laughs> it, it really is. It's really hard in that way. Um, now, to, to dive into your topic here, the wisdom of anxiety, um, my first question well, and statement is this. So we all have our own journeys in life that all, often lead us to realizations about ourselves and the world. How did you come about recognizing the wisdom of anxiety? And what does that mean to you? Um, hi, I'm Gideon. I want to get this out in the most coherent way because it's such a, it feels like such a big story inside of me that sometimes it's almost hard to know how to put it out there. So as I mentioned, I did my own work in my twenties and a lot of that work I was, uh, I went for my own anxiety and a lot of my anxiety was triggered by health stuff. And so I really thought of myself as a hypochondriac and people kind of thought of me in that way. And I would get sick with a sinus infection and, 
you know, a couple of months into it feel like it wasn't resolved because it wasn't. And um, at one point, my awesome therapist, who I don't in any way, like I have a rare condition, so I don't, I don't hold any uh, blame or anything like that around that, but it was just kind of like, you go to the doctor a lot. I think you're looking for something, you know, I wonder what you're looking for. So it put it in this framework of, okay, there's something going on here therapeutically. Like if I can just, if I can just manage this in my mind, then I can, I can manage this anxiety that comes up. And I feel like I got really good over time at turning the volume down on anxiety, comforting myself, like just calming myself down and managing it, even when it would come up around health stuff. And so I guess it was December, 2018, I, I got pneumonia and it very quickly progressed to sepsis and septic shock. So one morning I was at breakfast with Sienna with the kids and the next day I was in the ICU and possibly about to be intubated. And I came out of that really just like not knowing what had happened at all. And I felt very in limbo for a few months. And then luckily somebody suggested um, in a very insightful way that I get my immune system looked into. So I did an immunoglobulin panel and everything was really low and really off. And so I was diagnosed with common variable immunodeficiency disorder, which is under the category of primary immunodeficiency disorder. So most people are familiar with the boy in a bubble um, with David Better, who had severe combined immunodeficiency disorder. And, and so I have the more common one being common that it affects like one in 25,000 to one in 50,000 people. So it's still considered a rare disease and people donate plasma and don't know where that goes. And I am one of the recipients to that because when people donate plasma, um, those of us that receive it are actually getting donated immune systems so that we can fight infection and be as healthy as possible. So I'm grateful for all the medical advances that have come along for a population like mine. So the very first time I met with my immunologist and he was going over the labs, he just said to me, this was never all in your head. And it was sort of this mind blowing like this reflection of a lifetime of thinking this was all just my anxiety mm-hmm. and realizing that it was actually me picking up on what was going on with my own body and really needing some help and support with that. And so where that was sort of just a shift with me that I really began thinking about a lot of the people that I've worked with with anxiety and A lot of the times, and I kind of already had this approach, to be honest, of let's listen to it. Let's sit with it and listen to it and see what's going on there so that we can help you get whatever resources you might need. Like that was already, I I think as a culture, we're very good at distracting from anxiety and uncomfortable things. And a lot of us therapists that encourage this sit with it kind of method, like that was there. But I really thought through a lot of the people that I'd worked with and thought of cases where um, the person came to me and they were the identified one with anxiety, but really they were in a pretty rough domestic violence situation and they had a lot of good cause for their anxiety because there was alarm bells going off and then this is not a safe situation and you need to get out of this, but they were identified as the problem with anxiety. And so not that I was identifying them that way, but that's kind of, they came feeling like they were the problem for having this. And so I think what this did for me as a clinician was it really helped me to deepen into, let's really listen to this. Let's really see what doctors are needed to rule out your fears. Let's really see what resources will help you. So not just to put it kind of all on the person with anxiety, but to look at it as more holistically Mm -hmm. so that's I don't know I feel like I just went off on a really long tangent Noah no I think that that was a story um I wouldn't call it a tangent um you know and I'm really glad to hear that you you got that figured out and and now you can get the treatment you need for it um and so like kind of like you're talking about 
talking about sometimes our anxiety is our body and brain trying to relay information to us that something is wrong. And sometimes our gut instincts about something masquerade as anxiety and vice versa. So how do we go about telling the difference? I love this question so much, right? Because I think for a long time, I've sort of said intuition must like follow the same wiring or path as anxiety inside of our brain or something, because it is so hard to sort out. And the uncomfortable answer is we may not always know. We may not always know, I think is where I land with that one. So I think that's where the counseling gets to let's sit with this, let's listen to it. And then let's really do some evidence checking. Let's really check. Is this a fear that has some evidence under it? Or is it something that you just need a whole lot of comfort or support around? Or is it a trigger for some past trauma or some past stressors that haven't really fully been addressed yet? And let's see about addressing those. And so I think the answer is different for each person in each situation. Yeah. How do you go about like telling the difference for yourself now that you've gotten this really awesome like validation? Like, has that helped you figure out what the difference between intuition and anxiety is for you? Yes. So for me, that really is doing the same work that I help other people do of evidence checking. So if I feel like I'm getting sick or something is going on with my body, um, checking in, what is my heart rate? How much water have I drank? What are, what are my vitals like? And then much like I get clients to do is to resource and reach for help, right? So I reach out to my immunologist's office and ask the questions of, you know, here's what's going on. And they're really supportive and caring people who will let me know, you know, this sounds like it's anxiety and this one let's follow through by starting this antibiotic or let's deal with it this way. So I think it's that same method of listening to myself at the deeper level, seeing what's going on, being kind to myself, and then reaching for help and support. How do you, how do you experience, because I think I've done some work with clients around like recognizing when they're getting like some sort of gut instinct, like, you know, some gut response to something and learning how to like access that. So I guess what I'm curious about is, do you find that when something is more intuition related that you feel it certain places in your body? That's, that is a good question. I love that it's called a gut feeling, right? Because for me, it really is kind of in the gut, this gut knowing. The way that I've described that to clients is somehow, somewhat how it was described to me as listening to this like still quiet inner guidance and voice and that, you know, if it's anxiety, it might kind of scream at you once or twice and you have to evidence check and see what's going on. But if it's a still quiet inner voice that lets you know something's off or something's not quite right there and you listen to that over time, then I think it's consistent inner knowing. Does that make sense? How I Totally, 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 totally. Um, You know, another thing is that a lot of medical conditions can also cause anxiety, right? So how can we figure out what is a clear and present problem versus the perception of danger? So I think this is where a lot of clinicians could use more training and and growth, not in diagnosing medical conditions, but in sort of knowing, okay, this person consistently presents with anxiety in these ways, you know, have they checked with their doctor for anemia? Have they checked with their doctor for hypothyroidism? Have they checked with your doctor in these different ways? I, I heard anxiety when it comes from medical stuff, almost described like a leg cramp, like your leg kind of cramps up and hurts for a minute and then it'll release when it's done. And so learning how to sit with that cramping pain that happens until it releases. And so I think the work somewhat changes when it's anxiety based on medical conditions, because it's really helping people to move through those discomforts and learn how to be, again, kind to themselves and, and address that and deal with that from that perspective. 
Did that answer the question? Did that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and thank you for mentioning some like potential medical concerns that could be related. Um, so how do you think we can all kind of harness the wisdom of anxiety in our daily lives? So I think that it comes from learning this tolerance of discomfort and sitting with it to listen to it at a deeper level. I think that a lot of times we just want to fix it or move away from it and or avoid or avoid it. Exactly. We just want to move away from it, avoid it, fix it. And we really do, especially with anxiety, need to learn to sit with it and listen to it and comfort it and compassionately approach it. How do you work with folks in learning to sit with distress? I like the term emotional tolerance, right? Like I, I like helping people to start to understand what that means of what do you feel and what does it tell you that it needs? So anger, I, I think I start with decriminalizing feelings, right? Because Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of like jealousy, anger, all of these feelings are in some kind of bad category. And I do not think that way at all as a person or clinician. And so first to normalize of it makes sense in that situation, you're having some anger. It makes sense. You're having some jealousy. Let's sit with it and see what's needed with those feelings rather than it becoming a voice somebody uses against themselves internally. Right. Yes. So same with anxiety of yeah, let's sit with this. Let's let's see what it's saying. This the feeling isn't a bad. It's it's just a feeling you're experiencing. Let's evidence check it. Let's support it. And I will say this too. I think a lot of times suppressed anger is tied to anxiety, and so helping people learn the emotional flexibility to feel anger and voice their needs, a lot of times is a huge relief for anxiety. Yeah, I mean that's one thing that. I've seen a lot in working with men is, you know, um, a lot of anger, but the source of that anger, in my experience with clients, tends to be anxiety for men a lot of the time. Yes. Fear. Mm-hmm. Fear. And so the, the anger is a quicker, easier emotion to access for some. And, and more acceptable that way. for men. And more acceptable for men. Absolutely. And then for others, they suppress that and all of the anger right. goes inside and right. turns into depression and increased anxiety too. Yep. So it's, it's really saying, okay, all feelings are okay. Let's find healthy expressions for them rather than them coming out in unhealthy or harmful ways. Right, right. Yeah, and, and thinking about things like trauma too, like, sometimes old strategies that we developed as a means of our survival stop working and impede in our lives um, where they had worked before. And all of a sudden something becomes a problem that hadn't been a problem before. Um, And I think that's, you know, I think a a lot of people end up in therapy um, because of those things popping up at times. That is part of why I love working with the retired population is a lot of them come in and they're like, I have suppressed this lifelong and I cannot anymore. And so it's like, okay, let's bring it in the room. Let's talk about it. Let's give it space. Let's see what you need. Let's see what healing we can do with this. Let's see what help we can, what resources will help you with this. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, So when working with anxiety, it sounds like you take uh, a pretty CBT approach, which, you know, um, is something I, I tend toward as well. Are there any other modalities or strategies that you use? So I think empowerment is in there as well, helping mm-hmm. people to learn to state their needs, advocate for themselves, find safe people in places that will advocate for themselves. So I think helping people to access that ability to set boundaries and get needs met is really Mm -hmm. an important combination in that, along with the client-centered 
going where they're ready as they're ready approach. For sure. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I found that a lot of the work that I end up doing with people is around boundaries and assertiveness. Um, you know, it feels like something so important that it should have, like, it should be taught in schools. Uh, I'm just curious, do you find that a lot, too, that you're, you're working with folks a lot around boundaries and assertiveness? Absolutely. I think, yeah, you've really hit it there, that that is one of the things that people struggle with. And I remember that when when I met you initially, like, we were both like, okay, we're direct people who will say what's going on as people. Yeah. And that was such a, that was so nice because it's refreshing to be with somebody who can hold boundaries, you know, and state what the needs are to be around people that have that skill. And so I agree with you. I wish that could be taught beginning in elementary school and on oh, up. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so, so important. Um, and people end up in so much distress because of it too. Right. Yes that just needing the language of saying, no, this isn't okay. No, I'm not open to this. No, you can't come at me like this. Hey, I need some safe help here. And, and, then, and then that assertiveness of these are my needs. This mm-hmm. is what I'm struggling with. Where can I get the help with this? So I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, Well, is there anything else that you would like to say about the wisdom of anxiety that we haven't touched on? I'm hoping I've gotten into the spirit of it in the way that I intend with it. I think it's, I just have this strong wish to communicate to clinicians and the world in a big way of, hey, let's not rush to make this a disorder that is a problem of the person. Like, let's really sit with them and figure out the ways to evidence check this, but also support the person while they sit with this and help in all of the ways I guess I've talked about. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you think a lot of people see mental health issues as a problem with the person or of the person? Unfortunately, right? That does still exist in this world. I I would love to live in a world where their stigma is gone and it's not a, I'm a person with this problem. It's a, I need support and help with this. This is causing me some discomfort. I don't want to be alone in this. I want to explore it. Yeah. So I do think that there are, you know, there is unfortunately a world that doesn't go there. It goes more towards, this is a problem. Let's fix the problem. You've got this problem. Let's fix that problem. Right. And it's interesting to me, the dichotomy of which people perceive mental versus physical health issues. You know what I mean? Like, people, you know, people who resist, for example, like if needed, I mean, I'm very much an if needed person when it comes to this, but if medication is definitely indicated in a situation you know, somebody not wanting to take mental health medication because, you know, oh, I'll just, you know, start going for daily walks or, you know, um, it's a lot of resistance to understanding that whether psychological or physical, it, it all has a genetic component and is a consequence of things that we've had no control over in our lives for the most part. I love what you just said. I cannot agree with you more. And there's stigma around health issues. There's stigma around mental health issues. Ableism, for sure. Ableism and a lot of internalized critical voices Mm -hmm. about what you just said, things that are beyond our control that we legitimately need help and support with in this world. I like how you worded that. Cool. Glad we're on the same page. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, Moving on from that and moving on to you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? So it's, I feel careful answering this question because I don't ever want my clients to feel called out on should they listen to this, right? My approach with populations that 
that have struggles that are imposed upon them by the structures of this world are similar to what I've described here in terms of empowering and supporting and going where they need to go and not assuming I have all of the answers, but being able to resource to find answers that people need. I'm going to go further back from counseling. I can think of this one situation when I worked with teen parents, however long ago that was. And I went to a high school to provide a group for teen parents. And I got there and the school had gotten it confused or someone had gotten it confused. And it was a group of parents of teens. So (laughs) (laughs) and it turned into this change gears there. (laughs) So being a good social worker who could just go with things on the fly, I just went with it and uh, and just asked the group sort of what their needs were. And it ended up being a group of undocumented workers who were having some major issues at their work. Like it changed tune or tone entirely, even from the parents of teens to the struggles these families were having with getting paid and accessing resources. And so I went where they went and I was like, okay, let's start looking up some resources and began looking up what protections are built into our system to provide for this population. Let's help them wherever they are. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of one example in my brain that I go back to uh, meeting a vulnerable population where they were and just helping to listen to them and what their concerns were and then finding the resources for them. That was such an interesting memory. I still, I still remember that. Um, so that would be it's my a, approach. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really true. As therapists, uh, we just kind of have to go on the fly a lot of the time. Yes, we have to meet groups and people where they are and just say, okay, if I don't have the answers, I also really like that about doctors or therapists, whoever it may be. I want to be one of those people that's like, I I don't know how to help here but let me learn so that I can show up and support. Or let me find out Yes, where to send you or who can help. Um, Exactly. Okay, cool. So a lot of people get nervous before their initial session with a new therapist. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about more on an ongoing basis as well? That is... So in the past couple of years in the pandemic, I've only taken on two new clients and I've been working with them a while now, but sometimes I realize I've forgotten what it's like in those initial (laughs) sessions, right? (laughs) Because you build this rapport with people you work with for a while that just gets this flow and comfort to it. So I kind of go back in my mind and I'm always changing this to try to grow and be better in this. But a lot of times I tell people in the first session, I want people to know if it's the first time they've ever sought counseling, that all counselors function differently. And if they don't click with me for whatever reason, I'll help them get to somebody that they do click with. And then I also let people know that sometimes therapy can get hard and hit some hard sessions and, and that should I get anything wrong or them have a hard session, I encourage them to come back at least one more time or try to talk to me about any of those things to see if I can repair it and if I can get things back on track or go wherever they need to go. So that's some of what I build into initial sessions for helping empower the client to get their needs met. Well, that's, that's my approach to, you know, and if it's not a fit, helping people figure out what, what would be. Um, so how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Wow, I want to ask even more, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think the people that I've worked with long-term have the best sense of me um, in terms of how I work. And I am very relational. I am very much human and will admit my mistakes and my vulnerability and lack of knowledge in certain areas. And Uh, go with people into, let's see how to get you the resources and supports in this area. So I would hope people experience me. And I would imagine some of my clients would say, I am really truly non-judgmental and that it's okay to bring up any subject with me and that they will be met with just compassion and support in those moments. 
And I'm always, I've had some situations over the past year where new things have come out with people. And I'm so, I'm always so grateful that they've gotten to a new, new thing that they need support with that they're willing to share with me. So I hope, and I imagine people feel pretty safe with me, but I always want to know if somebody doesn't. So I, I build in a lot of questions into sessions of if this lands wrong with you, it's okay to let me know questions like that. Okay, cool. Now, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And just to clarify, when I say cry, I don't mean like full on bawling. <laughs> I mean, you know, just kind of like shedding a tear or two. So laugh, absolutely. I definitely laugh. And I love when there's humor brought into the sessions. I don't think I could help myself, but laugh when, when that's a part of it. Um, when it's appropriate, when clients yeah, are, yeah. yes. As for crying, you know, I, I think of one particular client who is just a really big feeler and they move into feeling places and it's like this gravitational pull where if like occasionally they will tear up and cry and I just naturally mirror that in some ways. So I always try to do it and I'm having a human moment with you without trying to take the focus off of what their needs are in that mm-hmm. moment. But definitely there are people who have moved me to tears in sessions. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we are human and sometimes things are just sad and I think it's okay to be sad as long as it's not about us. Right. That's Absolutely. not what it's about. Absolutely. So um, on to one of my favorite questions. How do you define holding space for someone? I love listening to different answers about this on your podcast. I love it. I know. Yes. So holding space for someone to me really is that non-judgmental, like just a safe place for people to unfold themselves and be like, here I am. And this is my hurts and these are my traumas and this is my pain And these are the things I need support around. And so just that ability to sit there with active attention and active listening, providing compassion and kindness and safety and support and just sort of surrounding people in this space of it is okay to be you in here. This is not a place that you're going to be judged. Let's let you unfold and support you in whatever is coming out. It's a good definition. Yeah. So what is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? I mean, I guess we could even include colleague here as well. That is a good question too. I, I have had so many amazing mentors and colleagues to learn from over the year and or over the years. And one of my favorite that I remember is Um, a therapist that I worked with in Georgetown. I really, really loved working with her. And she gave me her view on what therapy was. And that view has always stuck with me. When she said she, she did a lot of research in Carl Jung and really liked kind of the Jungian approach um, to swimming around in the subconscious and getting in touch with those parts of us, those unacknowledged or unowned or barely known places. And she just said that therapy is making some of the subconscious and unconscious conscious so that we have a choice of how we want to handle things. And that, I loved that. That is yeah, that sums it me. up pretty well. Yeah, we have so much going on in our minds and in our world sometimes that's all just happening. And when we sit down and get conscious of it, then we're like, okay, what do I want to do with this? So that's, that might be my favorite piece of advice that I've been given. Well, about what- it, yeah. I mean, in thinking about that more, you know, we, we're all creatures of habit. I mean, we have patterns to our behaviors, the things we get irritated about, you know, our relationships, you know, and, and I think acknowledge it, like being able to know, like, Hey, I've been doing the same thing for an extended period of time. 
hasn't gotten me anywhere new, isn't helping, like, okay, like, now I see it, now what do I do about it, you know? Right. Um, and having that knowledge of ourselves to be able to, to behave, to respond in a different way, to have that choice, because now we know. And it's kind of one of those things where once you know it, you kind of can't ignore it. Yeah. Once I knew that my anxiety actually was tied to a medical condition, it changed everything. So once we become truly aware of things, then we have so much more agency and choice around how we want to handle them. Exactly. Out of curiosity, I forgot to ask earlier. Um, so once you got diagnosed, like what, what did happen with your anxiety? That is such an interesting question because it, I still have it, but I experience it differently. Now it really is a, hmm, is something off in my body? How can I evidence check this? Who do I need to reach for help and support with this? So it's some normal survival instincts, I think, that are really tied to that. And so I don't experience it as something wrong with me. I experience it as something I need to listen to and check out. So it, it's like it took the heat out of it. It took the self-judgment mm -hmm. out of it. I guess. What about have. like, do you experience it any differently physically? That's such a good question. Do I experience it differently physically? Not really. It's pretty similar in terms of like that, like I described the muscle cramp earlier, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Like something, my heart rate gets a little bit off. And instead of immediately assuming it's just my anxiety, I sort of go, oh, okay, my body's doing this thing with my heart rate. What's that about? What's going on here? So I would just say that that self-judgment, self-criticism is out of it. And it's just information, sort of like when feelings become information and we get comfortable with anger and we're like, wow, I'm really angry about this. Okay, that's information. I have an unmet need here or that's information I need to advocate here or that's information that something's off in this situation. So it really is taking that judgment out of it. And so are you, so are you talking about <clears throat> like having anxiety and before there would be some like negative self-talk around the experience of anxiety? I think before diagnosis, it was more of, oh, this is just my hypochondria. Like this, is, I see. this is just my, this is just that weird thing that I do. So kind of invalidating of yourself. Yes. Invalidating okay. of myself that it was gotcha. a problem with me or a little bit of my own disorder. Right. Yes. Which then I don't, I don't know about you, but when I get onto myself about feeling a certain way, I end up feeling more upset. Yes. Yes. And so that's a significant piece to be relieved. It was a significant relief to just to have an immunologist say to me, this was never all in your head. It was, mm -hmm. it was like looking back at my entire life through this different lens and that lens has incorporated a whole lot of compassion for myself and for others that made, mm -hmm. that didn't know either. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Okay. I'm glad I got to ask that because I feel like that, that was important. Important. Um, so uh, in thinking about being an LCSW, what have you personally learned about yourself and the world through your practice? So I'm human. I definitely do the best I can. And when I make a mistake, I want to repair it. I think when I think about the world, this is so true these days that we're all in so many camps that get kind of fired up. And when I'm with people, it doesn't matter which camp they're in, we're able to have this hopefully therapeutic connection that transcends all of that, all of the stigmas, all of the labels, all of that stuff to just be together and help each person where they are. And so it reminds me of how human we all are and how, how much the world can 
judge people. And underneath that is a person with feelings and needs and likely unaddressed feelings and unmet needs and, and just the humanness in us all. I think there's also this interesting thing that happens with therapists. I'm wondering if you've experienced this too. And I don't know if I, if maybe it's been talked about in your podcast and I just haven't heard that episode yet, but I think there's this thing that sometimes when we're going through things, similar things will come in our office. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started. (laughs) (laughs) It is, there is definitely, um, what's the word I want to use here? Some synchronicity. That's exactly right. That we do. Um, Yeah. Weird things. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird, the synchronicities. And so I think I heard about it in college. I remember a college professor being like, you know, when you've got something going on in your life, it'll show up in your room. And it still takes my breath away sometimes how true that is and how much that happens. And I loved your response. And the word synchronicity (laughs) is exactly what I would use with that. So that, you know, when you say or ask the question, kind of how does it impact like the worldview? I don't know. It kind of reminds me of how we're all interconnected mm-hmm. and it gives us a chance to do the work we need to do on ourselves and show up for other people, sometimes doing similar work. Yep. Yeah. Totally. I, I have this, I mean, it is an, it's a unnerving synchronicity for attracting people with rare diseases since being diagnosed with a rare disease. And I find that fascinating. So I like that I'm given this chance to be able to help people with some of the stuff that I've just walked through. Yeah. I wonder, there's got to be a term for this phenomenon. Like, right? somebody must have studied it. Come on. <laughs> right? We need some terminology around this. <laughs> we do. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff you've got to do to take care of your health. Um you know, at the end of the day, what do you do to take care of yourself? And is there one thing that you just absolutely have to do for yourself? I do my own therapy work, right? That is, I do. I still have a therapist that, man, every two weeks, that is my space where whatever is most up for me, that is my safe space to be like, here is what's up for me. And let's sift through this and let's sort through this. And, you know, I think when I get done with maybe a rough day or witnessing something rough somebody has gone through, I will ring a bell or kind of say my own version of a letting go of it piece and turning that over. And I also like to take walks and listen to podcasts. So if there's a day that I really need to go take a walk and kind of listen to something and check out a little bit, I do that too. Very cool. Okay. Next question is, how would you define happiness? Oh, I heard one of your answers to this on a podcast and I loved it. Yeah. You said something like you're like the feelings are supposed to be split and it's not all joy. I'm, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Like but, 25% uh, sad or, you know, negative emotions, 50% neutral, 25% happy. Yeah. I loved how you put that out there. Yes. Yeah. The neutral and happy. That's Yes. So for me, I would define it as a feeling among all of the other normal, natural human feelings that come up. And I sometimes wonder, because I can express my own feelings about sadness or frustration in this world, if people realize how much joy I actually feel, but because I don't tamp down on anger or sadness or all the other feelings, it's sort of like joy is just one of those that just kind of comes up through there, like happiness just comes up through there. So I think when we have emotional flexibility, we're able to feel all of the feelings that need to be felt. And so for me, happiness and joy is just feeling this deep sense of like peace and love and maybe it's my old hippie soul or something (laughs) like that. But just at this like real place of peace and and being in my place in this world. And I also love watching people grow. I love watching mm-hmm. people heal. I love watching repair work happen. Mm-hmm. I love those things. I think our profession gets access to some incredible joy that way. Oh, absolutely. And it always feels like such an honor too. 
such an honor to witness and have provided space for that person to let that come up. Yeah, it's amazing honor. So uh, next couple questions are a little vulnerable, although you've already answered one of them. Um, <laughs> first one is, what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? <laughs> so <laughs> you actually kind of mentioned this earlier um, when you said you aren't supposed to cry in front of clients, like in that, you know, like messy human way. <laughs> so I... <laughs> I had that happen one time in the past 10 years where I was going through, going through something in my own life. And this person just said a trigger word in session and I could not stop the tears from rolling out. And I think they were confused and they were like, what just happened? And I was like, I am so sorry. This has nothing to do with you, but clearly I'm in a rough space right now. Can, I'm not going to charge you for today, obviously. I think we probably need to reschedule. And that was uncomfortable for me because as a counselor, I am really good at managing my own thoughts and feelings and history. And that is the one time I can think where tears just spilled out and I could not control it. And just luckily it was with a person who is compassionate and understanding and awesome. And it did not impact our work. I think they just witnessed me in this very human moment, but that was pretty embarrassing and uncomfortable. Yeah. I was just going to point to that word again, like human, human, we're human. Can't, can't do anything about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, The next question is, and you answered this already, but if there's anything you want to add about it, you're more than welcome to. Um, Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes. I did that kind of bulk of my work in my 20s. I consider that like those seven years of individual and five years of group to be really formative in my own counseling work. And then over time, I have had a a few different counselors along my path that have helped me when different issues or life things have happened. And then I have my person now that I'm like, oh, you're just stuck with me forever (laughs) because we work (laughs) well together and you are my safe space. So you are my self-care and I love working with her. Yes. Cool. Cool. Well, Hannah, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and your practice? Um, that's, hmm. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's um, cool. Oh, I have to think about that one a second. Is there anything else we haven't talked about that we could for people to know? I feel like I've been really vulnerable in this, in this episode and that I do really approach things with professionalism and keeping it focused on the client's needs. And I really believe that client's needs are what, what our work is about. So in addition to that, I can't think of anything else. Awesome. Well, I definitely appreciate your vulnerability. I know it's not easy. Um, But thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to chat with you today and and just get to reconnect with an old office buddy. Yes, it is so nice to see you and do this. And I thank you and appreciate your work in this way so that people can hear all the differences out there and all the different modalities. And I think this is such an awesome, creative endeavor, Noah, that you have brought such a gift to our community for mental health providers. So thank you. Thanks, Hannah. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Gina Martin, licensed professional counselor, We'll be talking about her practice in an area of interest, somatic experiencing. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N. D-I-M-M 
www.itt.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest podcasts rely solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.